0: Um, No, you should not. (laughs) Um, Let's pray and we'll get started. So Father, we just give you thanks and praise. Just pray that you would bless these words that I'm about to share. Bless their speaking and their hearing. Just lift it all up to you and ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, what's it mean to be passionate about something? Well, to be passionate about something, if, if you want to look at it, an actual definition, means that you have a strong or extravagant fondness, enthusiasm, or desire for something. Now, if you were to ask me what I'm passionate about, I'd, I'd first say God, because I really couldn't do what I do without a passion for God. But if you ask me for uh, number two on the list, I would probably have to say Butler basketball. I mean, what can I say? I love the game. I love my school. I loved playing there, and I still love following the team. And uh, fortunately, they play in the Big East so that now I can get all their games on our local cable station. And uh, I even subscribe uh, to the online edition of an Indianapolis newspaper so I can follow them you know, and read about the players and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that's kind of what I'm passionate about. Now, if I were to ask you what you were passionate about, I would probably get a pretty wide variety of answers, I would imagine. Some of you, I'm sure, are also passionate about your favorite teams, whether that's VCU or UR, UVA, Tech, uh, or some professional team, perhaps. There are uh, people who are passionate about their hobbies, um, I have some friends who are bicyclists, and when they start to talk about rides they've done or new gear that they've bought, you can really sort of see that passion come out in them as they're talking about this. Um, For you, maybe it's your children or your grandchildren. Um, (laughs) This story just won't go away. We had uh, all of the kids and grandkids over at the house yesterday, and uh, the oldest is just turned two. Well, two, with about two and three months. And so she's sort of learning how to play hide and seek, but she hasn't really got the hang of it yet. So uh, she is going, um, Papa, find me, find me, find me. So I have to, so she then runs off, and I can hear and see her from where I'm sitting go into the downstairs bathroom. I'm like, okay. Cuts down the possibilities a lot. So then I, I start to walk in that direction, and I'll and I say, just to, kind of to myself to let her know I'm coming. Where's Jojo? And this tiny little voice comes. I'm in the bathroom. <laughs> so she's still working on the, the the gist of of hide and seek. She's not quite got that down yet, but she has a lot of fun. Um, some people are very obviously passionate about politics in some cases, maybe just a wee bit too much. So this list could go on for a while. You know, People can be passionate about their jobs, they can be passionate about vacation spots, diet plans, exercise routines, cars, home renovation, flowers, vegetable gardens. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And I would probably even encounter some people who are passionate about church whether it's this church or some other church. But the point is that people are very passionate about a lot of things, and we're not really very shy about sharing those passionate views with anyone and everyone. But amidst all of our own passions, maybe there's a question that those of us who are followers of Jesus ought to be asking. And that's what's God, what is God passionate about. And today we're going to learn about one of those things through the words of the prophet Amos. Now, Amos is not a book that you get to hear a lot about um, preached in church, but today is is your day, if that's what you've been waiting for. So, I <laughs> can't wait for a sermon on Amos. That's just, yeah. So, just to give you a little bit of an overview, since it's not one of the more well-known or or much-talked-about books in the Bible. Uh, The book of Amos was written to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. Okay, so that just gives you a little bit of historical perspective. And Amos was not any kind of a religious leader or scholar or anything else. He was essentially a farmer and a rancher. But he was the one that God chose to deliver this message to the people. Right? And so... What was going on in the northern kingdom at that point was there was great stability, there was great wealth. Uh, For all his faults as a king, Jeroboam Jeroboam was a great military leader and he had brought about peace and prosperity into the land. However, there was a lot of other things that he didn't do well. so amidst all their wealth and prosperity and peace, the Israelites were very ready for judgment to fall on everybody else, right? But they weren't so receptive to hearing that they were going to be judged as well. And so what was going on was they were overlooking the plight of the poor and they were taking, taking advantage of people's weaknesses. And so in chapter 5, Amos is lamenting this and is calling them to repentance, because God knows that they're getting rich on the backs of the poor, they're using bribery in the justice systems, they're ignoring the needs of the needy. And it was through Amos that God graciously, before doing something about it, calls them back to repentance. But unfortunately they choose not to do that and God is rejecting the empty sacrifices and hollow praise that they're offering and instead tells them that it's justice and righteousness that's what shows their obedience to him. So we're going to read, and it's a a fairly lengthy uh, section from Amos. It's Amos chapter 5. And so just we'll have it up on the screen, or you can pull out a Bible or a Bible app if you wish to follow along. But we're going to be in Amos chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Listen, you people of Israel, listen to this funeral song I'm singing. The virgin Israel has fallen never to rise again. She lies abandoned on the ground with no one to help her. The sovereign Lord says, when a city sends a thousand men to battle, only a hundred will return. When a town sends a hundred, only ten will come back alive. Now this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. Don't worship at the pagan altars at Bethel. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal or Beersheba. For the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile and the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Come back to the Lord and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire, devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the flames. You twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. It is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and Orion. He turns darkness into morning and day into night. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. With blinding speed and power, he destroys the strong, crushing all their defenses. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people telling who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellion. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Those who are smart keep their mouth shut, for it is an evil time. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God of heaven's armies says. There will be crying in all the public squares and mourning in every street. Call for the farmers to weep with you and summon professional mourners to the wall. There will be wailing in every vineyard, for I will destroy them all, says the Lord. What sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here, you have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against the wall of his house and he's bitten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of joy or hope. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. Away, uh, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living." Pretty strong words from Amos. So looking at this, trying to see okay, what's God really saying you know, in this particular passage, I think the idea is pretty clear. It's that God expects us to passionately pursue His ideal for justice and righteousness. His ideal for justice and righteous, righteousness. So what does Amos say in all of this? that can help us do that. Okay, what are, what's obviously, he's speaking to people from long, long ago. What do, what do we take away from this? How do we apply this, I guess, to our everyday lives? And I, I, I really found three things that I think really can uh, be applied to what's going on in our lives and what's going on today. The first one is examine your own motives, responses, and actions. You see, the motives, responses, and actions of Israel were not exactly aligned with God's principles or his plans and purposes. So in verse 7, he mentions that people who worship God were not treating other people as God would. Instead, they're manipulating religious law, community practice, and weaker people for their own gain. In verse 10, God's people sought to profit illegally through the courts. So they hated any righteous judge who condemned their injustice and despised any righteous witness who told the truth in defense of the innocent. And then in verse 11, Amos says that the church people were, not the same, were the same ones who trampled on the poor. They got people into debt, took over their land to pay the debt, then forced the landowners to work, for the, work the soil for them and pay the largest share of the crop as rent for the land. And in verse 12, the rich were literally taking the food right out of the mouths of the tenants and the children. And if these local, um, if these hungry ten- tenants appealed to the local judges, well, the wealthy landowners had the judges in their pocket. And so there was no way they were going to get justice. So in other words, there was this gigantic gap between how God would have people treated and the way his own people treated Treating each other. I can't help but think that as God looks down at us today in this day and time, what does He see in our motives and in our responses and in our actions? And unfortunately, there are two areas that, that seem to stand out right now. I think He sees His people exhibit an overwhelmingly critical spirit, and He sees people devoted to causes but not to him. Both of these things in their own way perpetuate injustice. Now it's been interesting that uh, this week the writings of Oswald Chambers uh, have really been speaking to me and they've contributed greatly to the points that I'm about to make. And that's, that's fascinating to me because Chambers, first of all, was an Englishman. And second, he said these things between 1911 and 1917. Okay, and he died, unfortunately, in 1917. He had to have an emergency appendectomy, and I believe it got infected, and so then two weeks later he passed away. Um, So keep that in mind. All these words were written at some point basically 100 years ago or more. And so in regards to the first point about being critical, uh, Mr. Chambers made this statement. He said, The average Christian is the most piercingly critical person known. The average Christian is the most piercingly critical person known. He goes on to write that criticism serves to make you harsh, vindictive, and cruel, and leaves you with the soothing idea that you somehow are superior to others. Jesus says that as his disciples, you should cultivate a temperament that is never, never critical. Stop having a measuring stick for people. There is always at least one more fact which we know nothing about in every person's situation. Now it pains me to admit how true Oswald Chambers' words are today because I have been on the receiving end of a Christian's piercing criticism on numerous occasions. And you all would probably laugh if I told you some of the things that I have been criticized for over 13 years as a pastor. But I don't just see it there. I also see it on social media. You see, we don't respectfully disagree with anyone anymore. We just attack the other person's motives or character or intelligence. And this seems to be born out of a relentless allegiance to a viewpoint or a doctrine. And that brings me to the second point, people devoted to causes and not to God. Oswald Chambers also said this, Jesus did not say to make converts to your way of thinking, but he said to look after his sheep to see that they get nourished in the knowledge of him. Discipleship is based solely on devotion to Jesus Christ, not on following after a particular belief or doctrine. He continues, Today we have substituted doctrinal belief for personal belief, and that is why so many people are devoted to causes, and so few are devoted to Jesus Christ. People do not really want to be devoted to Jesus Christ, but only to the cause he started. You see, in our passion and our advocacy for a particular cause, we can't get so caught up in what we have decided is right that we lose Jesus in the process. And Jesus is not simply lost to us. He's potentially lost to anyone that we aim that piercing criticism at. The Israelites in Amos' time apparently saw nothing wrong with what they were doing. That's why God sent Amos to them to tell them that their motives and responses and actions were abhorrent to him. And that's why today we need to pause and examine what's behind the things we're doing and saying. Because even with the best intentions, we can become what we despise. In our era of social media and fingertips that press send before the conscience can catch up, we are at risk of doing far more damage than good in our quest for quick justice through internet shame. So before opening your mouth, sending a text, or commenting on a Facebook post, examine your own motives, responses, and actions. Second, don't leave your faith at church. See, for many years, uh, this particular passage—and I'm talking about verses 21 to 23—when he talks about he hates show and pretense and hypocrisy, and he won't accept burnt offerings and 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 all that. Away with your noisy hymns of praise! There were many for many years. Um, this passage was interpreted as, what is wrong with worship? You know, it's it's though Amos and other prophets were somehow advocating for a more pure more spiritual form of worship. But then later commentators began to see that the problem wasn't the worship, it was the worshipers. You see, Amos doesn't intend to replace worship with some kind of social action. He tells us that God does not accept the worship of those who show no interest in justice in their daily lives. It's a man named John Foreman who wrote and sang a song called Instead of a Show. And it gives us a modern interpretation of these verses. The first verse of the song is pretty much taken straight from this passage in Amos chapter 5. But in the second verse, he gives it a little bit more of a modern twist. He says, your eyes are closed when you're praying. You sing right along with the band. You shine up your shoes for services, but there's blood on your hands. You turned your back on the homeless and the ones that don't fit in your plan. Quit playing religion games. There's blood on your hands. And then in the song's bridge, he says, quit fooling around. Give love to the ones who can't love at all. (coughs) Give hope to the ones who got no hope at all. Stand up for the ones who can't stand at all. I hate all your show. (coughs) Why would God say this to his people? Didn't they go to worship every time they were supposed to? Didn't they fulfill all the worship requirements that were in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers? What's gone wrong? Well, God, I think, has a very simple response. He says the answer's not in the fervency of your worship. He said the answer's not in the quality of the music program. The answer is not in giving more money. Because you can't sing or play or worship or give well enough to soothe God's anger or to guarantee his pleasure. It's the heart of worship that's what counts, not the performance. You see, we leave our faith in church when we approach God as a Sunday obligation and not an everyday way of life. God is telling his church, you can worship until your throats are raw and you can no longer stand and it won't make a bit of difference to me if you then leave the church and live like hell the rest of the week. As James so aptly puts it, faith without works is dead. Don't leave your faith at church. And then finally, do something to increase justice and righteousness. So instead of ritual and performance, God wanted a relentless commitment to justice and to righteousness. He wanted a passionate concern for the rights of the poor and those who are denied justice. And only this outer evidence of inner righteousness could offer the Israelites the possibility of survival in the day of the Lord. We're living in a time when respect for legal systems is breaking down because those systems are obviously not working as they should. The prophets, beginning with Amos, had in Israelite tradition a legal system based on principles of equality which they could appeal to. They weren't creating new ethical standards. They were holding up the failures of the present order against the standards of the law, which were being ignored, widely ignored. Western civilization also has such a legal tradition, which in fact can be traced back to the Old Testament. And so the prophets of today well, the prophets of yesteryear, actually, challenge us not to proclaim that the end is near because of our current failures, but to continue to remind our society of our classical principles of justice and to expose the failures to put them into practice which still leave the poor and the weak without justice. At the point Amos wrote this particular uh, letter or book, It was too late. It was too late for the northern kingdom. They never did repent, and I think it was Syria that came in and took them all captive, and um, for years they were in slavery again. But it's not too late for us. We should read and hear the words of Amos as a challenge, a challenge not to make the same mistake that ancient Israel made. Amos wasn't a professional holy person, as I said earlier. He was a shepherd, but yet God used him to write a book in the Bible that is focused on justice. And as believers, none of you have to wait for this church or any other church to to provide some ministry opportunity or to issue a public statement on something before you take action in this regard. Simple things like buying items that are free trade or ethically sourced can help prevent companies from profiting from child labor or slave labor. If there's a serious conflict or abuse in the church, stand up for what is right and don't allow things to be swept under the rug. Stand up for a coworker who's berated by an overbearing boss. Shut down a racially insensitive joke. Teach your children to value those people who have disabilities. And if you're really brave, tell someone still flying the Confederate flag that the war ended 155 years ago, the South lost, and it's time to move on. All these things promote justice in the world. To conclude this, It's obvious that we're facing so many issues at once right now. This COVID virus, everything shutting down, pivoting from meeting in public to meeting online, now trying to pivot back again, concern for everybody's finances, friends and family who are losing their jobs, children who didn't get to finish the school year and now are not even real sure what next year's gonna look like the continued manifestation of racism in our country, and the emotional toll that this has brought to everybody. It seems to have made everything anyone says or does an emotionally charged time bomb for someone else. Can we all just calm down, take a breath? Can we dial back the rhetoric, the criticism, the hypersensitivity, the causes that don't advance Jesus first and foremost, and find ways to operate as if the Jesus inside of us has really made a difference in how we live and what we say? ran across some advice that I'd like to leave you with. This came from Phil Strout, who's the National Director of Vineyard USA. He sent this out this week, and it fit... I think, perfectly with this message and kind of what I wanted to leave you with. First point was engage where you are. You see, this goes back to what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago about things being overwhelming and then we tend to procrastinate. Well, you and I may not be able to change everything at once. In fact, I know we can't. We can't help everyone at once. We can't be everywhere at once. But we can be where we are. And once you figure that out, then show up. It doesn't sound like much, but it means everything to those people that are already there. And then once you show up, keep showing up. When you keep showing up, it speaks of a lifestyle, not an event. And then finally, and this may be the most important point, commit to a long obedience in the same direction. Continue to love your neighbors. Continue to keep standing in the gaps. Keep announcing the gospel of the kingdom and the fact that the kingdom is coming. Keep speaking against injustice and caring for the marginalized. It's part of our holy assignment. We know that this system didn't break overnight. And thus something as big and and, uh, as entrenched as what we are facing is not going to be uprooted in one day by one thought, by one sermon, by one action. Achieving a society filled with justice and righteousness is going to require a long obedience in the same direction. It will require us to continue to show up and be in the context of our local realities and relationships. One day at a time, with a sustained commitment to the long haul, If we commit to a long obedience in the same direction, we're on a steady march towards a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. Let's pray. Lord, I simply ask that the conviction of your Holy Spirit would reside on each one of us. That whatever truth about our situation is contained in these words, that you would illuminate it, that you would shine your light on it, bring it to the surface that we might repent and turn from it. We are truly sorry, Lord, for the ways in which we have not modeled your love for one another. Whether it be through words, spoken or written, through action, through inaction, through internally held attitudes, beliefs. just come before you today lord to repent from those so i ask that as your spirit is resting upon each person that you would bring to mind those things that you want to clean us from today and that as they come to mind we would willingly without hesitation, turn them over to you. And that we would leave that encounter not feeling guilty or ashamed, but free. Full of your abiding love. And that in doing so, we have moved one step closer to being more like Jesus. And that's a very good thing. Just pray your blessing upon all of those who are here. That the more that we seek you, the more that we will find you. with a wafer and some juice that are in in front of you, hopefully. And if you would like to join in communion, you can use those. Or if you're in a front row, you can reach behind you. There's probably one there. So we recall now that on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread offered it up to his Father in Heaven and asked his blessing upon it. Then he took it and he broke it. and He gave it to his disciples and he said, Take this, all of you, and eat, for this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. When supper had ended, he took the cup and again he gave thanks and praise to his Father for it. This cup as well he took and he gave to his disciples and he said take this all of you and drink for this is the cup of my blood the blood of the new in everlasting covenant blood that was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins so that whenever you eat of this bread or drink of this cup you would do so and remember me and that's why we do it to remember him So, Father, I just pray now that you would consecrate these simple elements that each one of us hold in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and that you would make them to be for us, your body and your blood. The body of Jesus given for you. And the blood of Jesus shed for you. Thank you, Lord, for this simple meal that we celebrate each week that reminds us of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Help us to more fully appreciate what was done for us on that cross. that it would inspire us to live a life that is more like what you modeled for us in the brief time that you were here on earth. Help us to do only what we see and hear the Father doing. Guide us in how to know that. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a prayer request or you need prayer or anything, Pastor Jeff as well and myself are more than happy to pray for you. That's what this time in our service is for. It's really just a time for us to hear about your needs, the people on the prayer team, and just really press into God for you. Because we're a church that believes in miracles. Amen? Okay? Well, I'm a guy that believes in miracles and a church that believes in miracles, I hope. But but we're going to.